Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. The football, the football podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Game of Thrones. This week there are already two of us on the podcast. Just the two of us. <laughs> we can make it. Out. Enough of my singing voice. I am joined this evening only by Phil. Hi, Phil. How you doing, man? Hey, mate. I'm all right. Uh, yeah, finally, just the two of us, just you and me. Feels like a candlelight dinner. How romantic. Yeah, how romantic. And what better episode uh, than this one? The main topic, United versus Liverpool. The biggest game in English football. As my mate Tommy Flanagan would say, Jackie boy, this is fantastic. <laughs> We're going to move on to that in a bit, but first of all, um, we're going to move back to one issue from the international break last week. Um, England 6, Bulgaria 0, or Bulgaria 0, England 6, I should say. Uh, but that wasn't the main talking point of the game, unfortunately. Shameful scenes in the Bulgarian National Stadium, as there was a lot of racist chanting and Nazi salutes in the stands from uh, what seemed to be a minority of Bulgarian fans, but still, it doesn't excuse the behaviour. Terrible scenes, Phil. It, it was just something we don't want to see in football. This is um, a topic we have been talking about a lot and I think we will talk about a lot in the future because it's a, it's a real shame that it's still such, an, such a big issue uh, worldwide for society, not only in football. And no more mercy, no more acceptance, no more tolerance for racism. I think the team was right to talk to the manager and there were two interruptions by the referee. And I heard in the England or from the England camp that if there would have been another huge incident in the second half, they would have walked off the pitch with the support of the management as well. And I said before, this would have been a great gesture. And I think um, both teams behaved very well, very professional, to be honest. As long as those players at least show some respect and togetherness and professionalism, I think we just have to sprinkle some of that to those, as you say, minorities. Nowadays, in society, in football, it doesn't really feel like minorities anymore. But nevertheless, we have to show respect for each other and we have to, we have to be very, very, very aggressive this time fighting this because campaigns on scoreboards or in TV adverts won't change one bit. Definitely. Um, just in terms of the game itself, um, Tyrone Mings making his debut after 25 minutes, it, it felt like it was kind of ruined for him after he had to tell the linesman about what he'd heard, the racist chanting in the crowd. And I think what made it even worse was after the game, the Bulgarian uh, manager trying to deny what had happened in the stadium after his captain had gone over to the fans at halftime to tell them to stop the racist chanting. Absolutely disgusting scenes. Um, and we saw after the game as well, the Bulgarian prime minister even ordering 
the president of the Bulgarian FA to resign. And it's just a, it's just a mess. And it's not the first time this will happen. Um, it's definitely not the last time it's going to happen. As you said, as long as the punishments are so light. I mean, um, we saw in Montenegro a few a few months ago um, in the European qualifying that they were fined. I think it was thirty five thousand euros for racist chanting. And I mean, that's not going to do anything. Thirty five thousand euros and closing a small section of the stadium. Um, as you said, I think it's time. It's time for us to get tough on that. UEFA and FIFA seem to be very, 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 very tough on things like watching football on streams. They're ready to give out the big fines for that, um, but they don't seem ready to give out the big fines for racism. And it's, I think it's about time these these associations got their got their priorities right. Um, happy to give World Cups to countries with terrible human rights records, but not happy to do anything about the racism which still exists within football. There is my rant for the day, and we're going to move on to uh, the next topic, the main game of the weekend, of course, Manchester United 1, Liverpool 1. It's very handy that we have a Manchester United supporter and a Liverpool supporter on the podcast today. So, Phil, what was your view of the game? Oh, well, so much history in this one. I always think, actually, and I spend a lot of thoughts before the game on on the history and on the past years and how things have changed and Actually, if you take football away from those two cities, monks and scousers are so much alike. I think that tells a lot about the rivalry, that it comes from the history. started with a ship canal, which had not so much to do with football, but ended up, you know, being a chant by United supporters when, when singing about the Liverpool ghetto and so on. The history is always there. You can... I think on those days when you watch um, the coverage on TV and when you talk with your mates like like we do and when you do your predictions and everything you can you can you, you see all those clips in between um, the broadcasts with so many impressions from the years before and you can you can just smell the history you can just taste it you know um, you're so buzzing before the match and I was so so buzzing before we started that match and I have to say I was way more positive than the years before because I think this this is one of the best teams in the world and I can finally say that my club has one of the best teams in the world again I think we haven't had that since 2009 since Gerard's team of men as he called it um, who never won anything but this team, I felt so confident that we could really dominate the game and show all your weaknesses and, and profit off them. But it didn't happen. And I think because of what I just said, the history and the atmosphere and the expectation and the buzz, I think it gets to some players. The occasion as well, when you step onto the pitch. And I think some of our players are very, very cool in high-level Champions League matches against the likes of Lionel Messi and Luis Suarez. But when it comes to playing at Old Trafford, you know, to me, the biggest game in world football has more viewers than El Clasico and the World Cup final, by the way. Then it gets to them. You could see Trent Alexander-Arnold um, was affected by the occasion. He was very emotional in his play and therefore made some mistakes he maybe wouldn't have made in another stadium against another opposition. So, yeah, it was how this game should be. Very, very intense, very passionate. But I have to say, 
most of the passion in the first half came from United. Especially the first 10 minutes, they pressed very, very well. Very good organization. The three at the back and the two wing backs and um, Fred and McTominay protecting um, those five players. That was, was very astonishing to see, to be honest. And Liverpool couldn't really deal with the spirit and with the aggression by United. Yeah, funny how things have flipped over the years. You know, just some years ago, we had to win the game with spirit to compete with United's class. And now it's vice versa. So I had to think about this a lot during the game. And for the first goal, great, great movement by Rashford to dummy the run to the first post and then move to the back post and, you know, just let the ball bounce against your foot into the net. What a goal scorer he is. Great, great goal. Um, James's run and cross were perfectly timed. So well-deserved. And I thought when VAR gave United's goal and, and denied ours, that I thought that 11 fired-up Reds would launch attack after attack in the second half. But that didn't happen because I think our fluidity was missing. The way of fluid play you used to when Liverpool attack, when Liverpool build up their play from midfield, it was just interrupted all the time by mistakes and, of course, by, by good organization by United. I think Pereira was outstanding. So we needed more mobile players and upstep Jürgen introduced Ox and Lalana, And um, he later added to that by introducing Keita. So we were able to move between the lines and create a little more. And then I have to say, because maybe if that would not happen, this game might have ended 1-0 for United. But it was awful defending by Rojo. I don't know what, what he had in mind by, by going to the first post in that, in that situation, but he did it. Lalana made it 1-1 uh, after Robbo's cross. And yeah, we had a lucky punch, to be honest, and Liverpool were lucky again. Fourth time in a row, I think now, to snatch a draw from United. And now it doesn't seem so bad. You know, we still won every game in the league before that. And we still didn't lose. So the record is still good. We're still way ahead of City. And I think if the match would have been 10 minutes longer, we would have won it. Because from the point on when Lalana scored, United kind of not collapsed, but they were just, you know, trying to shut everything down, make it over the line. Hanging on by a threat, you know. The the tactics we played were very very demanding. Um, yeah, and we I think we we played we played really well for about fifty minutes, and then we started to get deeper and deeper, yeah. inviting pressure. And of course, I think it was a good substitution from Klopp when he brought on Chamberlain Lalana because you had a bit more of a link between, as you said, the midfield and attack from that point, and you could you could feel you could feel a goal was coming. Uh, but I just want to bring it back to the first half for a second. Yeah. Um, we talked about VAR. We have a question, actually, from my friend Ben Rushton. Hi, Ben. Um, do you think VAR is having a negative impact on the referees currently in the game? Because I think we can all agree, for example, that the foul leading up to Rashford's goal was a foul and should have been reviewed. Um, how do you see the role of VAR in the Premier League right now? Good thing is you have, you have sometimes two things to cheer about or you can cheer in a very, <laughs> in a very, very 
banterish manner when the other team thought they scored and then they didn't. So that adds to the comedy, I think, and a little bit um, to the entertainment. But I think it wasn't a foul on Origi. That was not enough to go down like that. And I think if players would stop to exaggerate when going down, maybe then they would get the fouls. Because if Origi wouldn't touch his leg like he'd just been shot, maybe then he would give the foul if he would fall down more naturally. So I think it didn't really interrupt the play. United would have won that ball anyway, in my opinion, and would have started an attack. And it was a, a new situation before, before they uh, created the goal. So I don't really think that it was a wrong decision by VAR. I, I think it was the right one because when I saw the replay, I thought, ah, oh, fuck me. And that was that was okay. I think um, before we start to to complain or to discuss VAR for the next I don't know how many months we have to do this before we get used to it. I think we should just accept that it's there and talk about the positives and negatives and what we can do to improve it. And we have to get used to it. And I think, as I already said. It adds to the entertainment a little, so um, nothing against the second shout here. Very, very impartial from Phil there. I have to say, um, people have mentioned before about VAR, you kind of have to wait, like I had to wait to celebrate the goal because I saw that Origi went down. To me, I thought it was a foul, and to, I, I think he made a lot of it, but I still thought it was a foul, and I was surprised when VAR gave it, to be honest with you. I celebrated a bit and then realized, oh, shit, it's going to VAR. <laughs> and uh, I, I definitely thought it was going to be ruled out, but uh, it wasn't. Phil, you've told me a lot about uh, your perspective on the game, so I'll just say a little bit about what I thought. As, as you said, I think um, Solskjaer playing 3-5-2 was the right decision in the first half. Um, we managed to pin your fullbacks back. Of course, a lot of your attacks go through your fullbacks. And it, I think it showed that your your midfield without the runners from 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 wing back Alexander Arnold and Robertson your midfield isn't all that creative and I think it was good for us as well because we were playing balls into the channels um, counter attacking quickly um, Rashford and James did a great job of, of running into the channels and we kept the ball away from our weak area which is also central midfield and it, I think the second half when Liverpool really started to get on top of the game I think that started to show our weakness in midfield because we didn't have a player that can I think I was. I said this yesterday. I'm writing an article about it right now, and we don't really have a player like I don't know a, a David Silva or a Rodri, someone who can get hold of the ball, keep the ball, play a pass. And so we kind of, whenever we play well, it always seems like we're avoiding the ball in midfield because it's a very very weak area for us. And I think you guys in the last quarter of an hour maybe exposed that a bit more, whereas you couldn't in the first half because our plan worked so well. So I think. I'm not sure what you think, Phil, but I think 1-1 was, was a fair result in the end. Um, I think Liverpool, based on the last half an hour of the game, deserved a point. What do you think? Absolutely, absolutely. I was actually very, very happy about a point at the end because I really thought that we might lose it because I have to say, and I don't want to be the one who talks about the referee or that the referee is the reason why you didn't win a game or blah, 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 because we have VAR now, but... In the smaller smaller incidents, I thought a lot of decisions went United's way. 
And I think the crowd thought the same thing as United um, were cheering a lot and Liverpool fans reacted very angrily to a lot of decisions. So Atkinson didn't help. But at the end, it was a fair result. And again, how funny how things have changed. In the past, we showed much more passionate and intense performances and always your lot ran away with a draw or even nicked a win. And now it's us. So I think... Fair result, great atmosphere, great intensity was another advert for the Premier League and another advert for the biggest game in English football. A lot of times, even if it lacks class in some moments or some periods of the game, it always makes up with passion, with intensity, with the banter and the uh, the noise from the crowd and on all the chants. At this point, I have to say that there were some chants that you and me really hate when it comes to this fixture. Um, chants we, we do not accept and never sing ourselves. And I think it's totally unacceptable to chant something about Munich or Hulzbrough. It has nothing to do with football. And I think most supporters, most Evertonians, most monks would agree. Those minorities, we have them at every match against each other. I mean, there were bigger incidents when we met in the Europa League some years back when, and I have to note that Liverpool won the only European tie uh, of those two clubs that they ever played against each other. So totally unacceptable. And I hope that there will be much more shown from other people in the stands that they will deal with it and sort those people out because we can't always rely on authorities and and other people and politicians and, and, and UEFA or FIFA. We have to take action ourselves. And if somebody does a racist chant next to you or chants about disasters like Munich or Hulzbrough, you know, give him a piece of your mind. Show him there is no room for this here. You know, get other supporters to support you because we won't accept this anymore. And me and Jack are against this kind of chanting and this kind of language. And this this is not banter in my eyes. And when it comes to stupidity, I have to mention Roy Keane as well, who made a very, very stupid comment about hugging and kissing in the tunnel before the match. Yes, it's different nowadays, Roy. Grow the fuck up. You know, because back in the day when he was playing, of course, there was way more British and local players in the teams. And that makes a different kind of rivalry because those people grow up with it. It's in their blood. But you can't expect this from Roberto Firmino, from Fred or from Andreas Pereira, who are greeting each other before the match. It's not 2000 anymore. It's not 1999 anymore, Roy. Grow the fuck up. And in general, he's not the full shilling in my book. So, Roy Keane, a big F you from the Game of Thrones football podcast for this one. He speaks of war in a week where Turkey invades Syria to fight the courts. And when we hear stories about ISIS fighters being freed from prisons... He's talking about war when it comes to a football match. And I think this is the wrong climate for such language. 
I don't know what his mother is saying when she reads such comments, but I think she should have a really strong word with him. I just hope I, I hope Roy Keane doesn't watch YouTube because a lot of clubs now have uh, tunnel cams yeah. on their YouTube channels where you can watch the players going out for the game. You can watch the players coming in the tunnel at half time and at full time. And before the game, any two teams, you have players greeting each other, like asking how the family is, because this is the only chance they get to see each other, you know? Like, Absolutely. For example... Uh, players that played together before at different clubs, players of the same nationality, the only time they get to see each other is when their two teams play against each other. So they're going to say hello, ask them how the family is. And I don't think I don't think it makes a difference on the pitch. On the pitch, you still, you still make your tackles, you're still aggressive. But I think when you're off the pitch, that stops. You can be friends and you can still defend the colours of your team without like being hostile to each other outside of the game, you know? And I mean, in this case, with... Uh, with Fabinho, Fred, Pereira, Firmino, they're all Brazilian lads. They they obviously know each other outside of the game, been with the national team probably several times together. So, I mean, it's ridiculous. I, I definitely agree. Um, one more thing I wanted to touch on with this game. Jurgen Klopp was very, seemed to be very unhappy after the game, um, criticizing United for adopting a defensive approach. My reaction was Mourinho's reaction. Mourinho made a very funny comment in the Sky Sports studio saying that Jürgen wanted meat, but he got fish. Basically telling him to stop moaning about what other teams do. This is something... I think the top managers do this, though. I think um, Ferguson was always the same when a team came to United and played very deep defence. He was always moaning that the other team were defending. And Guardiola, Guardiola is definitely the worst for this. He's always making sarcastic comments when teams go to the Etihad and play 5-4-1 and frustrate City. But as a, as a top manager, it's 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 up to you to to find the solutions. United yesterday, I thought they just they did really well with the tools they have. We're not going to play an open game against you because that would be a tactical suicide. I think teams just have to play the best they can with the tools they have. And right now, Liverpool have a better side. And I think United did what they had to to get a point. Anything else you'd like to add, Phil? Nothing to add, Jackie boy. Let's move along. Okay, moving along. Um, we picked two other games this weekend. Uh, two quite entertaining games. Um, first of all, Lazio 3, Atalanta 3. We don't have our Serie A expert with us this evening. But it was an ent entertaining game, Phil. Um, Lazio 3-0 down, came back to draw. Tell us about it. Well, first half... Lazio had huge problems in their build-up play. They made so many mistakes and Atalanta were just clinical in using the spaces after every mistake and creating chance after chance and scoring and scoring and scoring. So it was 3-0 at halftime. Then Simone Inzaghi's man came fired up out of the break. But actually a stupid mistake was the first step to, to Lazio's comeback when Palomino stepped on Immobile's toe and Chiro made the most out of it by going down like being shot. And yeah, then he converted the spot kick. And then just 30 seconds later, after the kickoff, Jesus Christ, one mistake by Atalanta. Lazio were breaking and a spectacular goal by Correa. So from that moment on, the momentum was with Lazio. And Atalanta then at the end wasted their chances after counter-attacks most prominently in the 89th minute by Gomez. And um, yeah, then Immobile gets another pen in added time in a way that would have made uh, his manager's brother very proud. So he made it 3-3 with another spot kick, Immobile, uh, as he is taking 
all of the spot kicks for Lazio, I think, in the last three years, is one of the top scorers in Serie A, or the top scorer in Serie A, again, scored again, very, very clever Italian way of being a striker, of going down in the right moment, and then being the one converting the spot kick, so he saved them again, but there was no need to throw the lead away for Atalanta, to be honest. It's definitely a missed opportunity for Atalanta, who sit third in the league. Um, if they'd held on for the win, they would have been uh, just two points behind Inter Milan, who are second. Now they, they stay third, uh, four points behind Inter, um, and just a point ahead of Napoli in fourth. Lazio, they remain in seventh position. And we'll get to La Liga now. Um, we're going to talk a bit more in depth about La Liga later. Um, but Phil, you watched um, Atletico Madrid against Villarreal. How was that game? Well, it was 1-1, obviously result-wise. It was an entertaining match. In the first half, Atleti was the way better team, had plenty of chances, created one after the other. Diego Costa, Joao Felice, they all had their chances. And actually, the first goal came from an unnecessary handball from Cherichev, which uh, VAR give, uh, gave, and then Diego Costa converted it. At the start of the second half, Cherichev actually could have made amends and he should have scored. But what a save by Oblak to divert the shot onto the onto the crossbar. Great, great save for me. One of the top three keepers in world football. And then another Parejo special to equalize for Valencia. Beautiful free kick. Had some Juninho Pernambucano style about it. Um, great, great goal. So 1-1 and after three nil-nil draws from Atletico in the last three games. They add another one and it's their own fault because they were too passive in the second half and Diego Simeone is a great manager but sometimes he made them sit back way too early and this is what happens. Indeed. Um, I have to correct myself, by the way. I said Atletico Madrid played against Villarreal. Obviously not. They played against Valencia. That was my mistake. Atletico Madrid, they've drawn four in the last six. Um, they're still up there, two points behind Real Madrid, who are in second. Uh, they're down in fifth, though. Um, we're going to talk more about Granada and Real Sociedad, who are in third and fourth, respectively, later on. Moving along now, um, we're going to talk about a topic which, um, for UK listeners... This is something that is very, very big. We're going to talk about the topic of betting and gambling um, in football. Anybody who lives in the UK knows just how popular uh, sports betting, and in particular football betting, is. It's something that is a big part of British football culture now. You see everywhere when you're watching the football on Sky Sports or BT Sport, you see advertisements for different betting companies. Um, you see football shirts um, with the logos of betting companies who are sponsored by these betting companies. Um, I remember Demba Bar and a few other Muslim footballers refusing to... Demba Bar at Newcastle and Freddie Canute at Sevilla refusing to wear the sponsor on their shirt because, of course, gambling is, is, is uh, prohibited in Islam. And there have been so many, over the last few years, famous betting scandals in terms of uh, like professional footballers within the game. Phil, tell us about uh, a betting scandal you've heard about. Well, I will just tell you about three very, very famous ones. Uh, three ones I know a lot about, um, I read a lot about. First, of course, the most famous one, the Calcio Poli from Italy 2006. 
Juventus director Moji bribed referees and was caught because investigators were recording his phone conversations. And what happened is that they stripped off Juve of the 2005 and 2006 Scudettos and sent them to Serie B. And it had a major impact on Italian football. And it is by far the most famous, not really betting, but football scandal because it had something to do with bets as well. It, it was part of it. It was not the main thing. The main thing was to make Juve win games and to win championships. But the betting industry was part of it as well. And to this day, I think it's the most famous modern football scandal when it comes um, to corruption. Another scandal is the Totenero from 1980, where Milan and Lazio were relegated afterwards. A newspaper discovered that two greengrocers in Rome had masterminded a match-fixing ring involving Lazio players uh, who were regulars in their restaurant. The verdict was prison sentences for 21 players, officials and owners and is after the Calcio Poli, for everyone in Italy, everyone in Italy knows the scandal and it's, it was huge. And I think it was, or it might have been bigger even than the Calcio Poli, but because the Calcio Poli happened um, in recent times, it's, it's fresher in our memory and therefore maybe um, more famous. Another scandal I would like to talk about is not really proven until this day in and it involves a Liverpool player. But because it's not proven to this day, I won't say too much about it. But Bruce Grobbler, Liverpool goalie and European Cup winner, alongside with Wimbledon's Hans Segers and John Fashenu, the brother of Justin, who we've talked about in our last episode when we've talked about openly gay players, were charged with uh, match-fixing. They denied it. And two trials saw the jury fail to come to a conclusive verdict. So all three were cleared and continued playing. So those are the three biggest scandals I can remember, to be honest. And I think there is way more underneath the carpet. And I'm very, very curious if, if we will see more football leagues in the future, because a new way for football leagues has been promoted on Twitter and I'm very curious about other scandals because I think we're just some months, some years away from hearing about another huge, huge scandal. So let's see. Indeed. Um, we're also joined today uh, to talk about betting in football and to talk about a scandal that rocked Germany in 2005. It was a scandal of second division referee Robert Heuser. German football was completely overshadowed by the discovery of a two million euro match fixing scandal around this referee um he confessed to it he confessed to match fixing and betting on matches um in the zweiter bundesliga so second german league in the german cup and in the german third division and we're joined today by friend of the podcast and researcher and lower league football fan basti wolf basti how are you man hey everybody i'm delighted to be back on the podcast and i hope you all had a great weekend like me my hometown club, Red Star Leipzig, won 4-3 away in the local derby and I was there. And of course, I'm extremely delighted with Carl Fletcher's debut as new manager for Leighton Orient. An emphatic 4-0 away win at Grimsby Town. 
and even James Alabi scored, and what a goal it was. Indeed. Okay, my first question is, what, what did this scandal mean for German football? How did it affect the, the German game at that time? The first game affected was a League 3 fixture in May 2004. It was between uh, Paderborn, who play now in the Bundesliga, and Chemnitz. Um, Robert Heutzer got 8,000 euro from Ante Zapina for a Paderborn win and Paderborn should lead at half time. And so he made a call for a ridiculous penalty short before the, the half time break. But the lineswoman protested so heavily he had to take his decision back and so he failed to deliver and had to pay the 8,000 euro back to Ante Zapina. The next game was, I think it was one or two weeks later, uh, where he wanted to grab the next opportunity to to get some extra money. Um, it was another Regionalliga game between the second team of Werder Bremen and Wuppertal. And there he also offered his referee assistant some money f to, to help him. But they failed again somehow to manipulate the game. The biggest game that was manipulated was uh, on 21st August of 2004. It was a cup game between Paderborn again and uh, Hamburger SV. Uh, Heutzer gifted Paderborn two penalties and he gave a red card to Hamburg's Emil Penza. And Paderborn went on to win the game 4-2 and Heutzer's friend Ante Sapina won nearly 800,000 euro with this bet. Um, there were some more games manipulated in the Bundesliga 2 and in January 2005 his referee career came to an end and I think the trust in the German referees or let's say uh, referees in general suffered a lot. Referees, I mean, they're just humans like, like we all and so they make mistakes. But I think after this scandal, many voices came up after strange decisions that there uh, could be other referees who try to manipulate games. And many referees who made unpopular calls during the games uh, were threatened by fans of human players and you fucking Heutzer was one of the nicer insults to referees these days. So yeah, the referees, you can say, have, have had a hard time in German football in the mid 2000s as their reputation suffered heavily. And what did the German FA have to say about it? They changed the appointment for the referees for the matches. Um, they were announced now just two days before a match, which makes it uh, kind of harder to make uh, arrangements for manipulating the games. And the referees were also watched by uh, scouts and... So if there would be any irregularities, they will be reported immediately. Um, well, personally, I don't think this is enough. I mean, the refs have a huge responsibility and for that they get relatively a relatively low salary, yeah, which uh, could make them vulnerable for shifty offers. Anyway, uh, there was no other refereeing scandal in Germany ever since, but... Maybe we just maybe we just don't know. Um, what and what's kind of weird is uh, while Heutzer is banned lifelong from refereeing, another referee who was part of this scandal, Felix Zweier, is uh, still a referee and he refereed the German Cup final two thousand eighteen. So that's kind of strange, I think. 
Okay. How did the timing of the scandal? That obviously it was around the time of Calciopoli, um, and it was just before the World Cup in Germany in 2006. How how did the timing have an effect on how the situation was dealt with? Well, I think the timing doesn't have such a big effect. I mean, of course, such a scandal is never good around big tournaments, as the credibility of the sport suffers a lot. But come on, after a few weeks, there's another scandal that's talked about, and that's it. Um, I think no matter what comes, football will always be the sport we all love so much, and rightly so. But certain people, greetings go out to Mr. Blatter, Mr. Infantino, Mr. Heutzer, and the list could go on forever. They, uh, they destroy the credibility of the beautiful game. And one thing is sure, the next scandal will come. Okay, thank you for your time, Basti. Thanks so much for joining us and hope to have you again on the podcast soon. Bye-bye, mate. Thank you guys again for having me. It was a pleasure as always. And thank you everybody for listening to us and any feedback is appreciated. So thank you very much and take care and see you soon. Okay, yeah. I mean, um, betting is something that affects a lot of people, especially football fans. Studies show that 0.6% of the UK population has issues with gambling addiction. My personal experience, I don't actually bet that much. I only bet if I maybe have a quid spare in my pocket um, and I walk past a betting shop on match day and I think, yeah, sure, why not? And I'll pick maybe 10 teams to win uh, but I know some people like it's very easy with all the sponsorships and advertising to fall into a trap of of betting um, money that you don't really have um, I mean with the apps on your phone it's very easy to yeah. click 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 um, and before you know it you've lost like 50 60 70 quid or worse and I think it comes down as I said to to advertising the betting advertisements are everywhere and I think um, I'm sure Phil would agree with me I think more could be done to limit how much it's advertised um, and to help people gamble in moderation. Um, it's like it's, it's a similar thing to maybe kind of fast food. You see the advertisements everywhere. And to eliminate the problem, it's a case of better educating people about, about the dangers and the risks. Um, so to all our listeners, please gamble in moderation. And that includes you, Eric, because I know you like betting. <laughs> um, uh, I honestly have to say, unhealthy things for humans should not be promoted or sponsored in any way they should be there because it's your free choice to consume something that is unhealthy for you but it shouldn't be promoted or sponsored in any way that goes for cigarettes for alcohol for betting and if you look at the formula one i mean we all remember the 90s when the cars were full of marlboro and all this stuff and Lucky Strike and even the teams were named after those companies and they erased that completely, you know, because they wanted this to be a role model sport. I think betting can be there. It's anybody's choice to do what they want, but it shouldn't be sponsored or promoted in any way, as I already said. And to me personally, it's a waste. And it's stupid to throw money away. And I think it's hypocritical to point the finger at politicians or corporations for wasting resources or goods. When you throw the money you worked so hard for away and you throw this money at those corporations. Everybody can do what they want with their money. But consider others have nothing because they're not born on the shiny side of capitalism. 
and you throw your money away. Buy someone who's homeless a meal or a gift for your nana, but don't throw your money away. That's my opinion. Definitely. And as I said earlier, um, Game of Thrones encourages everybody, if you're going to gamble, to do it in moderation and don't let it get on top of you. Moving along to the next topic, um, we're going to be talking a bit... Mate, mate, we're not moving along. Because every time when something is at stake, you like to move along very quickly, like last episode. But you forgot uh, at the topic of betting, we need to make our bet for our listeners. Because you and me, we wanted to have a bet on Liverpool's title chances. You have to do something if we win the league. I have to do some shit if we don't win it. We are agreed on the terms. Jackie boy, would you like to um, would you like to announce the terms? I mean, you're the host, so Mike is yours. Okay. Well, <laughs> heaven forbid if Liverpool were to win the title, not only would I go and hide in a cave, but I'd also have to sing a Liverpool chant of Phil's choice. And the next time we see each other, he'll get. Ale, ale, ale. <coughs> I don't want to think about this. And the next time we see each other. He'll have to give me a good, good old-fashioned slap in the face. Um, obviously, if Liverpool, don't yeah, yeah, a, a, a really, really classic slap bet, you know, to to add to add a little bit tension to it and a little bit of excitement, because a classic slap bet involves nothing but if you win the bet, you can slap me in the face with your hand, not your fist, once as hard as you want, and vice versa, and we will record this, of course for everyone to see on our social media. So each and every one of us has to sing a chant of the other team that can be picked by the other, uh, by the winner. And added to that, we will have this slap bat. So keep listening, keep following us on social media to see which one of us gets a really, really big slap in the face and has to embarrass himself on a podcast episode by singing a chant of his most hated rival. Indeed. And I, it would be a double insult if Liverpool were to win the title and I'd have to get slapped in the face for it. Triple even, triple even, if you consider that you have to sing as well. And you and me, we're not, not really great singers. No, definitely not. Um, moving along now, we're going to talk a bit about La Liga. Um, we feel it's a league we may not have covered much in the last few weeks. It's business as usual at the top, really. Barcelona top, uh, Real Madrid second. Not maybe not the most convincing season from those two. Maybe it might be a bit more interesting. Um, but we're going to focus in on a team in third position. A great story and a great shock so far this season. Granada, um, under manager Diego Martinez, who got them promoted from um, Liga Segunda last year. They've had an absolutely great start to the season. The first game, actually. The first game on the opening day, 4-4 with Villarreal to announce themselves back in La Liga. They're working on such a small budget as well. Their top transfer this summer, just 3 million euros for Darwin Machis, the Venezuelan from Udinese. They've been clever in the transfer market and it's paid off. They've lost just twice so far this season, um, at home to Sevilla and away to Real Madrid. And they have a really balanced side. They, they're playing some good football. It's kind of, I feel like uh, Granada play a kind of almost English style. They like to get crosses into the box. They also incorporate Spanish elements into their game and good passing, good movement. And you can see that everybody's contributing. The goals are spread around the team. The top scorer, Antonio Puertas, he has three of the goals, but 
many other players are on one or two goals and you can see that the effort is really spread around the team. Um, standout players, um, the most well-known player is probably Roberto Soldado, who you remember from his time, obviously, at, at Tottenham when he was in the Premier League. Um, but the main standout player this season so far has been uh, Yangel Herrera, on loan from Manchester City, defensive midfielder, exactly the kind of defensive midfielder that you think Man City would sign. It's definitely a Guardiola player, kind of dictating play with his passing from midfield. And I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if Man City were to recall him maybe next season because he's playing a, a really, really good season so far. An interesting stat about Granada actually is that they scored the most headers in the top five European leagues. Five headers so far this season. Um, and I'm sure they'll add to that going forward. Another interesting thing in La Liga is uh, Real Sociedad in fourth position. Particularly the re-emergence, the return to form, what was once the teenage prodigy, Martin Odegaard. He's a player we thought, like many others, might have been lost to the machine that is Real Madrid. Um, he played just once for the senior team. The rest of his uh, 59 appearances were for the youth team, Real Madrid-Castilla. Uh, but he's really returning to form now after two loan spells in the Netherlands with uh, Veen and Vitesse Arnhem. Um, he's really returning to form for Sociedad. He's looking like the player that we thought he was, not like other teenage prodigies who were hyped and have failed to live up to their name. Freddie Adu, I'm looking at you. Playing in a number 10, number 10 position, um, scoring goals, assisting goals, two goals, four assists so far in the league for him in nine games. Um, creating a lot of chances for the strikers at Sociedad, uh, William Jose and Oyasabal. Um, 2.7 key, key passes per game for Odegaard, which just shows how he's really loving it at Sociedad right now. And the team is really benefiting from his return to form, obviously, in fourth position, within touching distance of Granada, and even Real Madrid and Barcelona. I think a lot will depend on whether Odegaard can maintain this, this great form so far this season to where Sociedad will finish in the Liga table at the end of the season. Maybe maybe not Champions League, but maybe Europa League. Who knows? Another player, if we're talking about returning to form and coming back coming back from an impossible position, um, I'd just like to mention Santi Cazorla, one of those, that generation of Spanish midfielders with David Silva and Juan Mata. Small in stature, but big on creativity, big on heart. He's returned to Villarreal for the third time after an absolutely terrible injury. Um... He injured his right Achilles tendon playing for Arsenal um, at the start of the 2016-17 season. Um, and he's gone through all kinds of rehabilitation. He got uh, gangrene on his injury. Um, they thought for a while his leg might have, to be, might have to be amputated. They thought maybe he wouldn't walk again. And to return, as he has done, to football, especially at the highest level, it's nothing short of miraculous. Uh, I'm sure Arsenal fans listening will be delighted to know just how well he's doing at Villarreal. Um, he's back this season. He was back last season, but obviously getting back to 100% was always going to be a long road. But this season, he's really back with a bang. Uh, nine games, four goals and three assists, including, you have to go and watch this one, an, an absolute screamer from 25 metres at the Camp Nou against Barcelona. It's just great to see such a good player return to form and um, we hope he can avoid injuries going forward because he's a he's a he's an important player for Villarreal. They currently sit seventh in the table, which is better than last season when they were fighting relegation. But if they had to do anything this season, to have Santi Cazorla on board will definitely be a, a big plus. And it's it's great to see him back on a football pitch and playing at a really high level. We're going to move along now to our top eleven, and we have two 
top 11s this, this week, me and Phil decided to name the best and the worst Manchester United-Liverpool combined 11s. Um, we've been looking forward to this one, Phil. We're going to start with the best 11. I'm going to start, of course, with the goalkeeper because it's the United goalkeeper. Peter Schmeichel, um, what can be said about him? Um, Cunt. <laughs> quite possibly the the greatest goalkeeper in United's history, although Van der Sar may have something to say about that. But I put Schmeichel in just for his the force of his personality. A great goalkeeper, great reflexes. But if you were in front of him in defence, he's a fiercely intimidating man, much like Oli Kahn was for Bayern Munich. And if you weren't doing your job, he'd definitely tell you about it. He was there probably in the most successful period of United's history. Um, he was there from 92 to 99 and just uh, made some saves that you just won't believe. Iconic penalty save against Dennis Bergkamp in the 1999 FA Cup final when we went on to win the treble. FA Cup semi-final, sorry, uh, before we were going on to win the treble. Fantastic goalkeeper. Moving on to right back, we've got Phil Neal, Liverpool legend. Phil, tell us about him. Yeah, yeah, Phil is talking about Phil. Yeah, Phil Neal, 455 games, five European Cup finals, won four of them, scored a penalty in 1977 in the final against Borussia Mönchengladbach and a goal in 84 against Rome in Rome. So nothing short to say, but legend. Definitely. Central defence now, Rio Fernand. Um, it was, it was a, to think of a United central defender, there have been a few good ones. Obviously, Bruce, Pallister... Going back further, Duncan Edwards. But I went for Ferdinand because he, he was at the top for so long. And he, he was... Him and Vidic, the partnership they had, Rio was the, the sophisticated passer of the ball. Great positioning, great awareness. And he could start attacks as well. Very good with the ball at his feet. And he served United so well until he left for QPR in 2013. Cost us 30 million at the time from Leeds in 2002 when he signed, which was a lot of money back then. Um, but it was well worth it considering we had one of the best defenders in the world for 11 seasons. Emlyn Hughes, Phil, Liverpool legend? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. 474 games, 35 goals, nicknamed Crazy Horse because of his tackles, signed and admired as a player by the great Bill Shankly, one of Liverpool's biggest signings and leaders under Shanks, and captained the club to two European Cups in 1977 and 1978. One of our greatest. What a huge man. What a machine. Huge, huge legend at Liverpool. For sure. Dennis Irwin, left-back. Mr. Dependable. He was such a consistent performer for United at left-back. One of the best penalty takers you'll ever see as well. Um, I think he had a 96% success rate from the spot. He wasn't spectacular as a left-back, but he was in our team for the most successful period um, in history. Irish Dennis Irwin, absolutely brilliant left-back um, for club and country. Bobby Charlton now have to say some words about this legend. I think even even rival fans would acknowledge just what a player Charlton was. Um, crucial after the Munich air disaster. He was the, the centre of the rebuild, which culminated in United winning the European Cup in 1968 um, against Benfica Charlton until Wayne Rooney broke the record just two years ago he held the record for most goals in United's history brilliant professional he was only booked once in his career I believe and he'd definitely be in at least the top three on any poll of United's greatest players of all time Stephen Gerrard Phil take it away 
I think I said it before, I will always say it again. To me, the greatest ever player to play for my club. I think he edges out Kenny because he's a scouser, because he's from the city and because he had this huge pressure on his shoulders for many years carrying a team that wasn't on his level, at least a lot of them. And Kenny always had this, this great team around him which helped to win titles. Steven Gerrard, what else to say? Yeah, your idol, your, your big idol, Zinedine Zidane, crowned him in 2009 at the best player in the world. I think um, you were not too happy about that. But what else to say than, than this famous banner, I think, that was shown at Anfield at his last match. It's, he's the best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. Um, moving on now, Ryan Giggs. Um, what can you say about Giggsy? Um, off the field issues, which maybe tainted his image with rival fans. But I mean, on the pitch, um, from 1990 to 2014, 24 year career at the highest level, countless Premier League titles, uh, 13 in total, um, two European Cups. And he was at the centre of all of that. And what I like about Giggs most of all is obviously he was a winger for the best part of his career, but to stay. To stay in the game, he reconverted to more of a central midfielder in the latter years, and he was still brilliant then. Feared by the Blues, loved by the Reds, Ryan Giggs. And shagged his brother's wife. I knew he'd mentioned that. Yeah. Kenny Dalglish, Phil. King Kenny and Sir Kenny Dalglish now. And there's a reason for that. What a personality. First, what a player he was. One of the best the English game has ever seen. He could do anything. He was just magical, just playing off the strikers. Then he went to become a player manager after winning all that there is to win as a player. And then he became our manager, winning championships, winning FA Cups. And actually only the Hillsborough aftermath stopped him from continuing his legacy and he had a second coming as manager when we fired Roy Hodgson in 2011 and just signed um, Andy Carroll and Lou Suarez. And we had two great cup runs under him. With, and I'm very, very fortunate to, to be able to say I saw Liverpool being managed by Kenny Doglish in my lifetime. It felt absolutely great to have him as a manager as a personality around the place the way he is the way he he's a symbol for the city of liverpool as well and he is ultimately loved there and he's just an icon and now he has his own stand the sir kenny daglish stand at anfield and he deserves this when it comes to players stevie edges him out but when it comes to to everything, to the full picture. And when you consider he's been our manager and so inspirational to so many, he's the biggest icon of our club. He's the king. So bow down. <laughs> uh, next one, Roger Hunt, Phil. Oh yeah, Roger Hunt. 404 games, 245 goals, second most for Liverpool Football Club just after Ian Rush. He's a World Cup winner from 1966. He won two championships and one FA Cup under Bill Shankly. And together with Ian St. John, he was Shankly's most deadly strike partnership. 
and he's just a huge legend for the club scored so many goals and is a big big icon for a whole generation um, the last one in our top 11 best 11 George Best <laughs> what could be said about George uh, he could have been he was he's already one of the greatest players in United's history but it's just a shame that off the field problems which are well documented kept him from being even better than he was he was at the top he was you can compare him to maybe other players um, the likes of maybe kind of Ronaldinho he was blessed with so he much. He was very similar to Cruyff, wasn't he? Yeah, I, th- he- I, I always thought when I when I saw tapes of Best, I thought like he's very Cruyff-like. He was such a good dribbler of the ball. Um, he could beat everybody, and he was by far the best player at that time at United in terms of talent. But again, he didn't look after himself, um, and it, it was a very sad ending in the end. But I'd just like to leave you with a quote from him: "Many people, not many people, get the chance uh, to score." from 30 yards at Anfield or have sex with Miss World. Thankfully, I've done both. Piss off. <laughs> great quote from the inspirational George Best. Rest in peace to one of the greatest United players of all time. Now we're going to go for the worst 11. This will be a lot quicker because... Don't forget the subs, mate. Don't forget the subs, oh. mate. And I'm, not talk- and I'm not talking about sandwiches. <laughs> the subs. Okay. Um, First one is, I think... I picked him actually for the starting eleven, but you went for Schmeichel. I picked Van der Sar, but yeah, he's a United player, so go away. Well, Van der Sar, we signed him for two million um, from Fulham in two thousand and five. We spent five or six years before that looking for a replacement for Schmeichel, and we finally found him. Edwin was in goal for another really successful period. Um, his last game, unfortunately, was that defeat to Barcelona in the Champions League final. But what a keeper! not just at United, at Ajax and Juventus beforehand. The spine of that team, the, the spine of the United team in those successful years, 2005 to 2011, with Van der Sar and Fernand and Vidic, we didn't concede many goals. Um, and Edwin, we may see him again at Old Trafford in the future, hopefully as a director of football. Fantastic goalkeeper, fantastic man. The next one on the list, I believe, was Andy Robertson. Yes. Go ahead, Phil. Yes, Robbo. He's the only one of the current bunch I included because I think so highly of him. He's just another one in the list of so many famous Scotsmen who donned the red of Liverpool. To me, he's future captain material. He's already captain of his country and a European Cup winner. He's a brilliant, brilliant left back defensively and going forward. Skill, work rate, determination, shithousery, it's all there. He's a comeback kid. He has a very, very interesting life story. I can only advise all of our listeners to read up Andy Robertson's story. He was rejected by Celtic. And there's this famous Twitter post from 2012 where he posted, Life at this age is rubbish with no money. Hashtag need a job. So very inspirational lot. Very, very banterish as well. Funny fella. And yeah. To me, he's a future Liverpool captain. Next one, John Barnes. Um, famous, obviously, in terms of England, with his famous rap before the 1990 World Cup. you got to hold your head and move it at the right time. I'm not going to sing the rest of it because it's... There's even an Anfield rep. So, yeah. John Barnes, take it away. Great player, Phil. Yeah, John Barnes. Um, actually, his most famous goal is one that is 
the least talked about in football history. I mean, he was able to dribble past six or seven players of Brazil in the Maracanã and then finished it off by scoring for England. And I think they even drawed the game at the end. So everybody go to YouTube, watch this goal. What a goal. And yeah, John Barnes, he was born in Jamaica. And after impressing for Watford, he went to Liverpool. He was victim of horrendous racial abuse during his career, but he shot them all up with his mesmerizing skills and goals. He was, he was such a good player. I mean, he became England's footballer of the year. He was the last England footballer of the year before Steven Gerrard became it in 2006, I think. And he's one of King Kenny's most important players and won several titles with the first team. So very funny, inspirational guy, very intelligent, very eloquent. He talks very fast, but it makes a lot of sense to listen closely because he's such an intelligent fella and I like him a lot. Great player. Um, the other two left on the subs bench, um, Eric Cantona. Well, where do you start with King Eric? Um, maybe not the best player in United's history, although he'd be very high up in the polls, but he was inspirational, charismatic. Uh, when Sir Alex was helping the youth into the team, the class of 92, Eric was the leader and the captain and the symbol of the club. Excellent human being as well. I think um, I know I definitely align with him politically. Um, very intelligent man. Went on to actually be a film star. And many people remember him also for his role in the Nike adverts, the Joga Bonito adverts of the mid-2000s. Fantastic, charismatic personality. Fantastic footballer. If you want a YouTuber goal... I suggest that lob against Sunderland in the 96-97 season where he just turns around with his collar up and just... I'm doing the celebration now, but nobody can see. <laughs> he turns around with his collar up and just looks around the stadium to say, look at me, look how great I am. And he was great. He was a legend. He was a leader. And he's still very popular at Old Trafford now. The last one... On we, the should talk about, we should talk about his most infamous incident, which in my eyes... It's the only thing that makes him a hero <laughs> because because he's he's United scum, obviously. But when a supporter racially abused him um, during a football match at Sellers Park, I think it was, he turned around, sprinted towards him and gave him a Kung Fu kick. It's a very, very famous, famous picture on T-shirts nowadays and on stickers and patches and I love an interview he gave some years back when he was asked by reporters if he regretted kicking the fan. And he said, I only regret that I didn't hit him hard enough. Um, that makes him a hero. I think apart from being united, he is a very, very likable bloke. And yeah. Author of quite possibly the shortest press conference of all time. Eric Cantona comes into the room, sits down and says... When the seagulls follow the trawler, they do it because they think fish will be thrown into the sea. Thank you very much. Stands up and walks up. Eric Cantona. <laughs> <laughs> Eric Cantona with all kinds, all kinds of interesting, uh, fantastic player. And the last one on our bench for the best 11, Robbie Fowler. Same birthday as me, by the way. Yeah, Robbie Fowler. 
nickname God, and there's a reason for it. 166 Premier League goals. He was as deadly as he was cheeky. Very bright per uh, personality. Very intelligent. Very shy, but also very rebellious. Very funny lad. The most natural finisher I have ever seen in the game. You had the impression he was, he was always hitting the side netting. He could score all kinds of goals. I mean, he wasn't very tall. He wasn't very quick. Wasn't very mobile. But he could do it all. He scored goals some other strikers dreamed of. And in his first four seasons, I think, he scored more than 20 goals. He scored in a second game for the club. He scored five against Fulham in one match which gives you an impression how much hype he had around him when he was a teenager. He was actually the first teenage football star of the 90s, way before David Beckham. And he had to endure an enormous amount of pressure. I remember before the 96 FA Cup final against you lot, um, in the pages of the, of the newspapers, it was all about his life and they were interviewing people from his past and all this hype didn't affect his game. What, what people don't know, it affected him mentally a little bit behind the scenes. And his biggest problem actually was his first huge injury. From then on, he lost his pace and, and lost a lot of years and injuries came back and then he had ongoing problems with Gerard Ullier and then he left shockingly for Leeds United uh, was part of their wonderful young team at the start of the 2000s when it all fell apart at Leeds he went to City he actually he was the first one reminding people from Manchester how much European Cups Liverpool have won when he scored a famous goal for City against United and put up a four it was before 2005, before Liverpool won their fifth European Cup. Now it's six, by the way. So he started that trend that Steven Gerrard and others followed and that even was followed by Harry Wilson scoring a free kick last year against United in the League Cup, I believe. He showed the five times to uh, the United public as well. So Robbie Fowler, inventor of that gesture as well. And he's a Liverpool treble-winning captain and in 2005, in the winter, he actually came back and Rafa fulfilled a dream of his and of a lot of supporters. And God was once again worshipped at the shrine. And I was very, very fortunate that my very first live Liverpool game at Anfield was the last match of the 2006-2007 season four days before the European Cup final replay against AC Milan and it was Robbie Fowler's last game for the club even though Gerard was playing he captained the club and I was able to say thank you to one of the biggest idols of my childhood live when he took his last lap of honor at Anfield and I can only say it was a pleasure growing up watching Robbie Fowler, reading his comments, reading his interviews, reading his autobiography. Huge hero of mine. Love him. Thank you, Phil. And now we're going to move on to the worst 11, just very quickly. Um, in goal, we have uh, Charles Hubert Itange, um, who is remembered infamously, Phil, for 
laughing during the 20th anniversary of the Hillsborough anniversary. Not a good guy. I wouldn't think many people would buy him a pint on Merseyside. I can only add four letters to this name. C-U-N-T. Piss off, you're not welcome at Merseyside anymore. Anyone who laughs during a Merseyside, uh, during a Hillsborough anniversary is... I, I don't even have words for it. I would swear way too much now if I would go into it. Um, let's just move along. This guy is not worth it. At right wing back, we have Gabriel Obertan, who looks like every time he ran, he looked like a newborn giraffe. He was quick, but that was about it. Um, he had about as much ball control as someone with no legs. <laughs> um, he was He was just, he was awful. And we're going to move along now with Phil Babb. Yeah, Phil Babb. Awful player, but great fella. Uh, famous for crashing into the post. So everyone, please <laughs> go to YouTube, watch that video. It's hilarious. I think it was against Chelsea, and uh, <laughs> um, I think every single every single male listener we have will not want to watch that. Again. <laughs> um, but every football fail compilation has this one in it. So yeah, hats off to you, Phil. <laughs> um, the other centre-back is a guy that not many United fans will know William Prunier, French centre-back um, United had an injury crisis in the 95-96 season um, and we signed this guy for like six months to replace Bruce and Pallister who were both injured he played right in his first game but he'll be remembered for the shocking mistakes in the second game against Tottenham he, was, he consistently tops the polls of worst United players of all time and that's a hard competition to win because there have been some really, really shit United players. Left back, Paul Koncheski, Phil. Paul Koncheski actually fulfilled his dream and became a West Ham player after being a fan on the terraces for years. And his most famous goal says everything about him as a player. It was in the FA Cup final of 2006. It was in the dying moments he scored the 3-2 for West Ham just in front of their supporters and it was a mishit cross that went over Reina, near to the far post, into the goal. That says a lot about him. I think not much to add of his Liverpool career. Um, yeah, that's Paul. <laughs> the next one, Alberto Aquilani. Um, he's in this list for all the wrong reasons, Phil. Huge expectations couldn't fulfill them. I think he made the impression that he didn't try too much and he didn't like life at Merseyside so huge fail he was Mascherano's replacement and for being openly fascist I only have two fingers for him <laughs> next one is Cleberson we signed him after the 2002 World Cup we played really well um, just couldn't adapt to England I think he was a decent player maybe at one point um I, had, I can only have one United midf two United midfielders in this list and I went for Cleverson who is being rivaled for worst Brazilian ever at United by Fred but for now it's still Cleverson absolutely terrible uh, the, <laughs> the next one um, is Jordi Cruyff um, and between him and Eric Jemba Jemba I went for Cruyff basically living off his dad's name he was there at United for two seasons 97 to 99 only played a few games and he didn't set the world like that's for sure 
but Jemba Jemba wins the award for most funny name, obviously. So so bad they named him twice, I heard. <laughs> the next one on the list is uh, Bebe, a winner of the Homeless World Cup. And that's just about the best trophy um, he could aspire to get. I'm not sure. If, I don't think he won a trophy at United. But um, he was, for United, he was completely out of his depth. I remember an FA Cup game against Crawley Town where he looked worse than the Crawley players and Crawley were in League Two at the time. So yeah, possibly our worst signing ever. The final United player on this list will be uh, David Bellion, who was an average French striker who uh, went on to be an average French striker at Sunderland and Bordeaux. Not much to say about him. Didn't really get in the team, just not at United standard at that time. But I'm sure he would be now because we are shit. <laughs> um, I'm going. That... I'm going to pick the uh, the manager for the worst eleven. I think because maybe we had subs for the best eleven. Maybe we will add a manager for the worst eleven. The last, the last player on the list is Sean Dundee. Oh, okay, yeah, I forgot about Shawnee. Yeah, um, started very famously in Germany with Karlsruhe, scored a lot of spectacular goals along the way, and then he made a lot of effort to get a German passport to be able to play for the national team, which he actually never did. Um, he went on to play for South Africa, so that one went well. He came to Liverpool with a lot of reputation from Germany. He was awful, and he was described by a lot of players who trained with him as the worst player they ever played with. So nothing more to add there. And yeah, sorry uh, for interrupting our... Uh, worst 11 but yeah I think we should add a manager because I've never seen a manager at a top football club signing so much average players to replace full international world-class players and that must be Roy Hodgson I mean I like Roy I have nothing against the guy but he fucked it up so much it seemed like his managerial reign sucked the life out of Liverpool so much together with with the fuck-ups of Gillette and Hicks, who ruined the club, and it felt hollow at the time. And I've never seen a manager going to a top football club and signing so many average players, as I already said, and it, I still can't believe it. And thank God for Kenny Dalglish. <laughs> there, very well. And that's all we've got time for today. We shall be back next week. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you for longer than we expected, just the two of us uh, this evening. Just the two of us. Indeed. Join us next week, but we're going to be, uh, we're going to launch a donation campaign for various social causes. Phil, which ones will you be mentioning? Yes, we will. Uh, we want to introduce social campaigns and charities close to our hearts now from, from episode to episode. Um, of course, related to football and non-related to football. Next episode, I will start to talk a little bit about support Sean for Sean Cox, the Liverpool supporter who got attacked outside Anfield before the Champions League semi-final against AS Roma in 2018. And I think I can speak for a lot of or all Liverpool supporters by dedicating our sixth European Cup also to him. And I will talk about the Hillsborough Family Support Group as well. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned for the future. We will talk about more social campaigns, more social charities. So you can go to the Internet, inform yourself, support in any way, because these social campaigns and charities 
are just very close to our heart. Definitely. Don't forget to follow us on uh, our social media channels, and we will see you next week. Goodbye from the Game of Thrones podcast. Cheerio. Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. The football, the football podcast. podcast.